Hi, I'm Mark Rotterman. Coming up, Governor Cooper lifts the mask mandate. The House version of the state budget is due out in August. And is the Virginia race a key bellwether in the midterms? Next. Major funding for Front Row was provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by... Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row. Welcome back. Joining the conversation, Mitch Kokai with the John Locke Foundation. Leslie Rudd, Communications Director for the Senate Democratic Leader, Political Analyst Joe Stewart, and Donna King, Editor-in-Chief of the Carolina Journal. Mitch, why don't we begin with the governor's decision to lift the mandate, the mask mandate? Yeah, millions of kids are returning to school across the country in the coming weeks, and one of the big issues is, do they have to wear masks? And we've been getting mixed messages from health officials about what should happen. From the Centers for Disease Control, they say there should be no masks for vaccinated people who are indoors. The American Academy of Pediatrics, meanwhile, says everyone should be wearing a mask. The ABC Science Collaborative right here in North Carolina was also in favor of masks, but we saw a a Duke researcher right in the Wall Street Journal saying that that report was based on some faulty science that really didn't look at whether masks were effective. So Governor Cooper responded this week with his idea. And basically what he did was say the mask mandate is going to end as it was scheduled to end on July 30th. But there is new uh, guidance out there, strong recommendations for masking for everyone who's going to be in the schools from K through eight, and then masking also for the unvaccinated in high school. The interesting thing about this is because it is strong guidance, recommendations, it really pushes the final decision now to the local school district level, which uh, incidentally was also the goal of the Free the Smiles Act was to keep these at a local level. Joe, you have the floor. Well, I think this is a, sort of an indication. We thought maybe this thing was about over. The numbers looked very positive when the vaccine rollout came. I think we still have a ways to go. And some of the news accounts now of where we're seeing increases in the diagnosis and hospitalization is among the unvaccinated. And they're saying this may be the phase of the pandemic that principally affects people who've not yet received the vaccine. There's a world of issues going on now in terms of the education of our children, not just about safety in terms of the, of the virus, but in terms of issues like uh, critical race theory and the curriculum of whether homeschooling is a better method than the public school system and even whether or not we're ever going to return to the way things were before the pandemic in terms of how we educate our children. I think we're going to have a very rocky road, not just in terms of how we deal with mask issues in the schools, but I think issues yeah. of education are going to be big for months to come. Donna, Dr. Fauci says it's reasonable for three-year-olds to wear masks. He does. He said uh, below two, maybe not, but three and up, yes. So, you know, uh, 
obviously maybe doesn't have a three-year-old at the moment, <laughs> like, like many of us uh, do and have more recently. But I think what we're really seeing is this uh, policy move from slow the spread to allow vaccine and researchers to catch up and be able to treat those, that small percentage of people that have a really serious reaction to COVID, now to trying to stop the spread. So how realistic is stopping the spread completely? Because, you know, it's going to continue. And the idea is that now that we have a really effective vaccine available and treatments have improved, uh, that children and, and teenagers are much less likely to have a very serious a hospitalization level uh, reaction to COVID, whereas folks who are over 65, uh, they are much more likely, and with people with extenuating circumstances, health conditions, much more likely to have a serious reaction. And about 77% of those nationwide are vaccinated here in North Carolina, about 85. So we've made huge progress. And the idea of pushing this down to the local level, I think, is something a lot of folks have been advocating for, for a long time. in here. Well, I, I think you run into an issue with recommending uh, students wear masks when they go back to school. K-8 students don't have that choice. They're not approved for a vaccine yet. So whether you have a personal preference on one side or the other, whether you want your children to get vaccinated or not, kids under 12 can't get that done yet. And that becomes a real problem for these local school districts. Close this out, bitch, in about 20 seconds. I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens county by county with the mask mandate because we know that there's been a major impact on homeschooling and private schools because of parents who don't want to mess with this. Does that continue into this new school year? Okay, I want to move on, Donna. The speaker outlined his budget priorities this week. Talk to us about it. Yes, now this is something a lot of us have been uh, waiting for to see the House come out with their version. The Senate released theirs and passed theirs uh, several weeks ago. The House has been working on it. I would expect that some of those priorities, he, uh, the speaker is saying that they're going to see a little bit higher raises than what the Senate had in theirs, which is about 3% raises for uh, teachers and other state employees. Uh, so the timeline looks like they're going to work on theirs, then a few weeks for a conference report. Maybe mid to late August, they're going to get something through both chambers and to uh, the governor, but I would say that we're going to see it move really fast. Once they get into conference mode and getting it passed, it'll it'll really move quickly. But one of the things we're going to see is, regardless of how the details shake out, they agreed to a spending number really early in the process of about $25 billion the first year and, and 26 the second year. So how those two things, uh, how, the, how the different details come together, the spending number still is really within the rate of last year's spending plus the rate of inflation and population growth. Leslie, how involved has the governor been in this process? Are they con uh, consulting with him, you think? I think that we've seen uh, more involvement from the governor and the Democratic leadership this round with the budget than we ever have before, at least in the Cooper administration. Um, there was very early talks um, with the governor, both uh, the House Speaker and the pro tem, as well as the Democratic leadership to get those priorities, initial priorities on paper so that everyone was on the same page. Joe, Medicaid expansion off the table. Well, there's deal some, breaker. Yeah, some some modest expansion included in the Senate version of the budget. Um, I, I don't know. Uh, it's really a good question. We've had this discussion and debate for a couple of years now. It was seemingly an entrenched position that the state Senate had taken for no expansion. There's a modest expansion to include coverage for women beyond to 12 months beyond their pregnancy uh, at this point. I think there's a willingness now to, to perhaps have this conversation. Is expansion good for the state? Uh, and does it provide the economic benefit that many of its proponents have said? Mitch, you think the Speaker and, uh, and, and uh, Senator Berger will sign off on Medicaid expansion? 
not the Medicaid expansion that was initially part of Obamacare. Uh, there could be some sort of change to the Medicaid program that they will accept. They certainly wouldn't call it Medicaid expansion. To me, the most interesting thing is beyond the money that Donna was talking about in the general fund is the additional spending in the federal coronavirus relief money. That's really actually been one of the big sticking points between the House and the Senate is how much beyond the money that they've already agreed on the spending limit to spend because the uh, Senate would spend several billion dollars. I think the House wants to spend even more. It'll be interesting to see if they can come to an agreement. What else struck you about what Moore proposed? Well, that it, it's taking so long. I mean, <laughs> you would think if they start with an availability agreement, House and Senate, that this thing would go pretty quickly. I think they're being deliberative in part because there's a big slug of money in here from the federal relief funds as well, and they want to be thoughtful to make sure that those investments make sense and have economic benefit to the state. So maybe it's not so surprising this is taking a little longer than we expect. Donna, close this out in about 40 seconds. Well, I think one of the things that we're definitely going to see, uh, because both chambers agreed on early on, is some level of tax relief, uh, increasing those who fall into that zero tax bracket by raising uh, the standard deduction and probably maybe even accelerating, because we had a surplus, uh, accelerating the reduction in personal income tax and corporate tax. Well, let me ask you that. Is that a bone of contention on, on corporate taxes because they want to zero it out in the Senate, right? They do, and there's been a lot of pushback, I think, from the governor's office and some on on the other side of the aisle who uh, who attribute it to large corporations. Um, but, you know, you got to remember that the smoothie shop down down the street and, you know, the dry cleaners and all those local businesses that have really been hanging on by their fingernails for the last 18 months, they're, they're corporations too. Joe, let's talk politics. Let's talk about the Virginia governor's race, which may be a key bellwether for t the midterms, don't you think? Yes, our neighbor to the north, Virginia, they have their governor's race in an odd cycle, part of an interesting phenomena. We always say North Carolina is the valley of humility between two mountains of conceit, Virginia and South Carolina. <laughs> so they've chosen to have all of the attention in gubernatorial contests focus on themselves by having their elections like this. Uh, there, there is a requirement that a governor only serve one term and not be able to succeed him or herself in Virginia. But Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, who was a governor once before, now running again, uh, running against Glenn Youngkin, who's a wealthy uh, businessman wearing the car. former, he's a former Clinton operative, McAuliffe. Uh, yeah, and, and has uh, put about $12 million in, of his own money into the campaign. McAuliffe doing a little better in terms of fundraising, but this is clearly going to be a bare knuckles affair. Is it an indication of how things are likely to go in the midterm elections in 22? Absolutely, yes. Uh, Donald Trump has already announced his support for Youngkin, and it's a little like installing a skylight in your house. Youngkin loves to have the opportunity look at the stars, but he's afraid that it's going to leak and ruin his uh, sofa. <laughs> and so now he's got to walk that thin line. Now, Youngkin has talked a lot about issues that matter to Virginia voters outside of the Trump endorsement, things like critical race theory in the school, uh, wanting to spend more on education, wanting to do more to make Virginia economically successful. McAuliffe has a good track record to run on. Virginia just listed as a top state to do business in. The economics of this race, it'll, it really is who can win over white suburban women in Virginia, principally in the North Northern Virginia area, do school issues resonate with them more than perhaps their dislike of Donald Trump and by proxy uh, Glenn Youngkin? You know, Mitch, Northern Virginia has been problematic for the GOP in the last several cycles. Oh, it really has. And Virginia in general has gotten much bluer. So I think if uh, Terry McAuliffe, with the greater name recognition and having been a former governor, if he wins, I think the Republicans say, well, you know, we gave it a nice shot. If the Republicans win, that's really bad news for the Democrats with the, uh, the way that the state has been bluing in recent years. Donna, do you think that Virginia is the uh, 
ground zero for the culture war right now? Well, I think it's it's a good example of what's happening across the country in the culture wars, and that's one of the things that, in this case, the Republican candidate is really zeroing in on. Virginia's really more like two states. You know, it's very blue in the northern part in the D.C. suburbs, uh, Loudoun County being one of them. Uh, it's much redder as you get further south. Uh, so I think what you're really seeing is that they have grabbed onto this sense that after, during COVID, people have gotten pretty fed up with bureaucracies, whether it's the public school or the ACC or the NCAA or, you know, they, they're tired of being told how to live. schools has become and a huge is issue in huge. County, and I think right? people have become more engaged in their children's education. And I think a lot of Republicans have grabbed onto that sense that people uh, are not going to overlook it anymore. Biden's coming into Northern Virginia from a cough. See a plus, you think? Well, I think so. I, Biden has... Uh, done pretty well with Northern Virginia, at, at the very least. And Virginia, of course, went for Biden in that state. I, I think he'll do well with McCollum. Okay. Your take? Yeah, no, I think this is going to be a very expensive race. Uh, we're going to see a lot of attention focused on it nationally. And as Mitch pointed to, I think whatever the outcome is, of course, the pundits and the political insiders are going to point to that result is either favoring or disfavoring their candidates or disfavoring their opponents in the elections next year. Well, you know, Mitch, I think the issues in North Carolina are very similar uh, to what's happening in Virginia. They're going to be very similar issues, and so it will be interesting to see what happens when the Virginia voters go to the polls. I found very interesting the fact that education played such a huge role, or at least it has so far in this campaign. Uh, McAuliffe talking about raising spending for teachers and throwing more money into the public school system, which has been sort of the standard democratic line. We need to invest more money into the education system, whereas Yunkin has been fo focusing more on sort of the big uh, issues like the critical race theory and transgender rights and that sort of thing. Do you think Trump will come in for him and where do you think they'd bring him? Well, it could be problematic, especially given right. that, that Youngkin uh, kind of wants to get that Trump endorsement without having to be seen too much with him. If they do bring him in, don't do it in northern Virginia. Put it in the southern part of the state where there will be much more likely to be a huge Trump crowd. Okay, I want to turn to the General Assembly's uh, week. Leslie? Yeah, so uh, it's been a little slow in the General Assembly, but things are moving. What we're seeing on the Senate side, medical marijuana is moving forward in the General Assembly. Senate Bill 711 is the Compassionate Care Act. Just got passed out of Senate Finance this week. And this has been a long-awaited bill with a lot of uh, strong public support. 73% of North Carolinians support legalizing medical marijuana. Um, North Carolina has been really slow to evolve in this, but being that this is a Republican-sponsored bill, I think we really have some hope to see some progress here. Also, I, I will say that the jury is still out on criminal justice reform. You know, in June, the Senate passed unanimously Senate Bill 300, a, a strong bipartisan effort in criminal justice reform. What we're seeing on the House side with House Bill 805, there's some problematic provisions coming back in that would put... Uh, felony writing charges onto peaceful actors, whereas the Senate version had a much more narrow, tailored definition of that. So we've got a long way to go and before we get to meaningful criminal justice reform in this session. Donna, what have you been following? Well, also uh, from the Senate Finance Committee, a bill came through and was voted most recently to uh, dismantle the 100-year-old uh, North Carolina High School Athletics Association. This has been uh, something of a long time coming. They've been, uh, this group of senators has been investigating for many months now after there's a lot of complaints from parents and schools that say we brought that up a long time ago. Yes, yep. it, and well now we have a bill. So what right. this would do was it would it would dismantle this nonprofit 
uh, High School Athletic Association and create a commission housed under the Department of Administration that would have much more oversight, a lower cap of how much money they could collect. Um, it would uh, have more control over the fees that they can charge these financially strapped uh, high schools that often are, you know, selling popcorn to buy jerseys, but yet they're paying fees to the High School Athletic Association um, and penalties. So there's been a lot of pushback, of course. It's an old organization. Um, it used to be housed not too long ago, 10 years or so ago, under the UNC system um, and became a nonprofit at that point. So it's not been independent for 100 years. Um, so I, I anticipate this to actually move fairly quickly because there is a lot of momentum and the senators say they really aren't getting a lot of cooperation. Joe, what struck you about the week? Yeah, interesting piece of legislation to expand the number of prescribed medicines that a pharmacist can can administer to a patient, uh, in part recognizing that in principally the rural parts of the state there's sort of a shortage of medical care providers. So someone who needs a particular type of injectable may be not able to find a doctor locally to go to to get it done. There's a pharmacy in every county in North Carolina. There's not a doctor necessarily in every part of the state well. But this was cooperatively done between the leadership of the House and Senate health committees. Really uh, well thought through. All of the uh, stakeholders and the interested parties were brought together. Legislation moving through the Senate now. Finally, a bill will be done. Probably uh, doesn't look like the legislature is going to be meeting much next week, but certainly one of those things that's a well-intended and purposeful piece of legislation, wide bipartisan support, thoughtfully done, and it's probably going to get passed and, and implemented to the benefit of the people of North Carolina. Mitch, close this out in about a minute and put it in context, please. Well, as the budget talks are going on, that's the main thing. A lot of these other issues are coming to the fore. And one of the things that I thought was interesting, even though it's a little bit lower on the radar, is we saw during the COVID-19 pandemic that a lot of rules and regulations were relaxed or put to the side because you just really couldn't enforce them during the course of the pandemic. Now we're seeing some legislation that would help make some of those temporary changes permanent, like having remote building code inspections. Imagine all the time and money that will save if that becomes a permanent change, not just a temporary change. Another one is to allow for mental health counselors to be able to operate across state lines, which I think a lot of people thought, why weren't they doing that before? Those are the types of bills that we're going to see happening. And I think because the budget has been taking a little bit longer, a lot of these other issues now are playing out during the course of the campaign. Okay, great rep. Coming right back to you. What's the most underreported story of the week? Mosquito bites cause a million deaths a year. The mosquitoes wow. bite some when people get uh, yellow fever or malaria or some other disease. Well, uh, researchers, scientists at NC State University have now come out with a new fabric that's designed to make those mosquito bites less deadly. Count me in. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Apparently, you save lives by shielding people from the bites. This fabric is three times more resistant to the bites than a normal piece of cloth treated with insecticide. The researchers who are working on this have already started a company now to commercialize this and make some money, which would, would be of, of interest here in North America, but certainly in other parts of the world would be a much bigger business, probably in Africa especially. Leslie, underreported, please. Well, Senate Republicans are proposing an amendment to the state's constitution. Uh, this would essentially abolish affirmative action for North Carolina government contracts as well as the public university systems. It's something that voters really need to educate themselves on. It could be on the ballot in May 2022. Okay, Joe? Yeah, uh, interestingly enough, there's a third billionaire who wants to go up in space. So move over, Branson and Bezos. Welcome to Jared Isaacson, who's going to go up maybe as early as September. 
he's going to go higher in orbit than the International Space Station. So in this competition to get into space, he's going up higher and actually staying longer, maybe up there three days. Well intended. He did this as an initiative to bring attention and raise money for St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Um, we'll, we'll see if this continues to be a trend. Mark, perhaps you want to put some of your own personal resources and go up and we could do front row from the altitudes <laughs> of higher levels in the, the orbit of the Earth. Yeah, it is interesting, though. Space tourism is coming to fruition, isn't it? It really is going to become a dynamic in our country. And I think as more of these enterprises go forward, it will become more affordable. More people will be able to do it. It, it will become a, a, a destination vacation for many more people, I think, not just the uber wealthy. It shows the free market works. Donna? Mm -hmm. So a study just found that 90% uh, of the COVID money that was allocated for education, about 90% of it still hasn't been spent. About uh, $5.2 billion was appropriated uh, for COVID relief in school districts. It's not been spent yet as we all get ready to go, to go back to school and see how these students are going to be able to catch up from a lost year last year. Some of that spent over the summer, but uh, hopefully there will be um, more resources going towards What's the holdup? Well, I think some of it is just normal bureaucracy that's going through the going through the system and getting it to the actual people who need to spend it down at the local level. Okay. Yeah, Mitch, and, one, and one of the issues also ahead. is the fact that some of that money was designed to be spent over several years, and mm -hmm. some people are looking at that and saying, well, wait a minute, isn't this supposed to be emergency money? Why did you right. make it a three-year plan? Well, you think there's going to be more COVID money coming from Washington? I mean, there could be. I, I, I think this is something that's a winner politically when you say you're spending more money for emergency issues. That last package, the major package that President Biden signed in, there were a lot of people at that time saying, we don't really need more COVID relief, but he needed it politically. Well, I'm hearing they're going to extend the, uh, the extra unemployment benefits in Washington. Uh, if, if so, that would make for an interesting uh, dilemma for the states that are trying to get people back to work, because that, of course, was a major debate here in North Carolina, whether to end the debates early, or benefits early. Okay, let's go to lightning round. Who's up and who's down this week, Mitch? My who's up is a gentleman named Billy West. He is the district attorney in Cumberland County and recently was elected president of the National District Attorneys Association, he says, during his term as president, they're going to focus on trying to address this surge in violent crime, but also alternatives like uh, interventions, diverting people from, from the criminal justice system and treatment courts. So that'll be interesting to see. My who's down, former state senator Erica Smith, who is one of the contenders for the next U.S. Senate race. But if you look at all the top tier candidates, she's the only one who has almost no money. She's got about $50,000 in hand. If you look at the other Democrats in this race who are the big names, they have $800,000 plus each. How do the Republicans do? And the Republicans, actually, you know, they're all kind of in about the same boat money-wise, which is interesting because Pat McCrory, the former governor going into it, seemed to be sort of the big candidate. Then Ted Budd, the congressman, got President Trump's endorsement. Right now, that means that their money total has been getting a little bit closer. And Bud had money left over from his congressional campaign. Who's up and who's down this week? My up is State Attorney General Josh Stein. He was part of a historic $26 billion national settlement with opioid manufacturer Johnson & Johnson. And this is going to result in $750 million for North Carolina alone. You know, Stein really led the negotiations on this. And this is the second biggest settlement behind the tobacco settlements back in the 1990s. And we've got close to 2,000 people a year that die from opioid overdoses here in North Carolina. So this, this fund is going to go a long way for us. Okay, down. Our down is the International Handball Association. 
The organization fined the Norwegian Olympics uh, women's Olympic team for not wearing regulated bikini bottoms. <laughs> <laughs> the association couldn't explain why they have this rule, but it, the decision by the Norwegian women's team to push back on it really underscores the double standards that the Olympics hold for male and female athletes. Yeah. Joe, up and down, please, my friend. Up, unfortunately, the disconnect between white and black Americans. A Gallup poll came out that showed 57% of the people surveyed said the relationship between white and black people in this country is either bad or somewhat bad. Unfortunately, that's down nine points or up nine points, I guess, from two years ago. Probably a reflection of one of the levels of, of division we're feeling in this country now. Who's down? Unfortunately, life expectancy in the United States dropped by a year and a half as Are a result of the pandemic. It? The only other time it's gone down by at least this much was during the Second World War. I mean, that's a pretty significant thing. Of course, the good news is women still outlive men, 80.5 years to 75.1 years. Uh, hopefully this will rebound, but one of the troubling phenomena that's taking place is what's leveled out life expectancy from continuing to increase in this country is what's called deaths of despair overdose and suicide rates have crept up slowly over the past decade. So a lot that needs to be done to uh, try to forestall that from impacting life expectancy in our country. Donna, who's up and who's down this week? Um, up, I'm going to say biotech jobs in North Carolina. We're seeing a very steady growth of, of uh, j biotech jobs, particularly here in the Triangle and community colleges, North Carolina State University, North Carolina Central, all creating these training programs to make sure we can put North Carolinians in those well-paying jobs. Are we becoming the Silicon Valley of the East? I would like to, I would like to think so. I think biotech is really driving a lot of that because we have a great university system uh, and great medical system here. Um, my down is going to be the Tokyo Olympics. We're already, you know, they're already sitting there in the hotel rooms with their uniforms on, and we're hearing that it's possible that the head of the Olympic team, uh, head of the Olympics, says they might even cancel. Headline next week, Mitch. Parents pepper local school boards across North Carolina about mandatory masks. Leslie, headline next week. Parents spend those money, those federal dollars on swim lessons and maybe some tutoring. Headline next week, Jeff. Uh, financial markets continue to be unsettled by a resurgence of COVID-19 and the lack of an uh, infrastructure bill out of Congress. Donna, headline next week. Uh, I hope North Carolina unemployment rate drops. Some of those figures are due out next week. We are seeing uh, 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 jobless rates increase, correct? We are. We are. Okay. Great job, panel. Great job, guys and gals. That's it for us. Thanks for watching. See you next week on Front Row. Major funding for Front Row is provided by Robert L. Luddy. Additional funding provided by Patricia and Ku Yuen through the Yuen Foundation, committed to bridging cultural differences in our communities. And by Funding for the lightning round is provided by NC Realtors, State Employees Association of North Carolina, Helen Lockery, Mary Louise and John Burris, Reifenberg Construction, Stephen Gleason, and Jane and Van Hip. A complete list of funders can be found at pbsnc.org slash front row.